Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, Okay. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The word of the Lord. We're in a series on the book of Exodus, and uh, one of the amazing things about the book of Exodus is that even though it's one of the oldest books in the Bible, it's uh, one of the best for our late modern pluralistic culture. Uh, Why do I say that? Um, There was a big survey that came out a few years ago that revealed that uh, levels of formal religious participation are in decline here in America. Uh, Less and less people are going to church. But one of the interesting things about that survey is that it also revealed that that doesn't necessarily mean that, that um, people aren't still spiritually hungry. In fact, in this country, levels of spirituality are higher than they've ever been. Spirituality is in vogue. Uh, in other words, it's not that people aren't looking for God. It's that they're just looking for God in lots of different places. So that makes the book of Exodus and this passage that we just read uh, incredibly relevant for us because um, Moses is here, and and Moses up until this point, he believes in God, but this is his conversion experience. He knew about God, but this is where God became real to him. He became transformed by the presence of God. And, you know, the interesting thing about this is that, um, you know, there are about as many different ways of meeting God as there are people. And when you look in the Bible and you read all the different conversion experiences that are there in the Bible, uh, they're all very different. But if you look at what all of the experiences have in common, you begin to realize that there are certain elements, there are certain core features, patterns, road markers that are actually present in every single one of these experiences. What are they? This is important for all of us. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're exploring faith in Jesus, this is important for you because if you're exploring faith in Christianity, what are the road markers? How how do you know that you're really beginning to meet God? Or if you are a Christian, this is just as important for you because you can grow up in the church, you maybe have spent your whole life in the church, but that doesn't mean that you've ever really met God. This passage helps you to understand if you have and if you haven't, how to actually do it. 
The, the book of Exodus in this passage tells us what the markers are, what are the elements, what are the core patterns that are present anytime somebody comes into the presence of absolute spiritual reality. What does that look like? We're going to begin talking about it this week and actually continue on with this next week. But this week, how does it begin? These six verses that we read actually show us three things that are common elements. They're necessary. They're going to be present anytime somebody ever really begins to come into the presence of God. What are they? First, we turn aside. Second, we take off our shoes. And third, we see the angel in the fire. Okay? Three elements. Anytime you really come into the presence of God, we turn aside, we take off our shoes, and we see the angel in the fire. Okay? First, we turn aside. Now, um, in this passage, how did it all start for Moses? What, what was the beginning of all of this for him? It was the bush, this burning bush. Now, in a hot desert climate like that, a burning bush actually would not have been all that uncommon. It's called a brush fire. The, the really odd thing was that here's a bush that's burning but not burning up. Uh, a bush that's burning but the fire is not going out. So, uh, it says that Moses actually turned aside. In verse 3, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. When he says this great sight, what Moses is saying is, this is remarkable. I've never seen anything like this before. This does not fit my view of reality. So what he does is he turns aside. He goes over to investigate the matter. And this is incredibly important. In fact, it, it mentions this twice in this passage, not only in verse 3, but in verse 4 it says, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. So it's only after Moses turns aside that the rest of this encounter can take place. In other words, you know, if Moses had just said, wow, that's really interesting, I've never seen anything like that before. Oh, well, I've got sheep to look after. And besides, I think it's about time for my lunch break. If he had said that, he would never have met God. The rest of this encounter would never have taken place. But he doesn't do that. He takes the time, the energy, the effort to go over and investigate. He turns aside. Now, here's the question. What do you do when you encounter something that doesn't fit your view of reality? What do you do when something doesn't fit your view of reality? In science, there's something called a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is when you have a certain view of how something works. That's your paradigm. But then something else comes along, some data point, that turns everything you thought you knew on its head, and you realize, well, I have to shift my paradigm. I have to change my view of reality. The thing about paradigm shifts is human beings are, by nature, very, very resistant to anything that disrupts our currently held view of reality. So, for instance, uh, Jonathan Haidt is a professor of moral psychology at New York University. He's a widely renowned expert in this area. Jonathan Haidt says that all human beings are marked by two characteristics. First, he says, we're tribal by nature. I know you find that hard to believe, especially because we get along so well in this country, but that's what he says. We're tribal by nature. But secondly, and more importantly for our purposes, Jonathan Haidt says that all human beings use reason not to find truth, but to justify the things we already believe. We all do it. 
whether religious or not religious, we all use reason, our faculties of mind and intellectual capacity. We use those things not to find truth, not to discover truth, but to justify the things that we already believe. We are by nature very, very resistant to anything that disrupts or challenges our currently held views of reality. Now, do you see how this works? The question is, what do you do when you encounter something that, that doesn't fit your view of reality? The, the choice is, okay, do I take this data point and try and cram it into my view of reality, even though it doesn't make sense, or do I change my view of reality? Do you see how this works? What is a burning bush? A burning bush is a challenge, something that disrupts your view of reality. It doesn't make sense, and you're forced with a decision about how are you going to process this? What are you going to do with it? You know, it, when it comes to God, this can look in many different ways, in many different um, ways that this happens. So, for instance, sometimes a burning bush can be an intellectual challenge. It's a shift in the way you think. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is a story about uh, the great poet W.H. Auden. Um, before World War II, W.H. Auden was one of several English intellectuals who had uh, abandoned their childhood faith and become atheists. They laughed at Christianity. Their, their belief was that as society becomes more technologically and scientifically advanced, that eventually all religion is just going to die away, and eventually we're going to be able to get rid of violence, get rid of war, get rid of all of our social problems. They believed that, that any enlightened, educated human being is obviously going to support human rights for all people. But then along came the Nazis, and it was incredibly disruptive for W.H. Auden's view of reality. Because here were these German people in Germany, and especially Berlin in those days, was like one of the epicenters in the world for things like education, art, science, music. These were some of the most educated and sophisticated people on the face of the earth, and yet here they were slaughtering millions of Jews. It was so disruptive for W.H. Auden that he basically said, look, I don't believe in God, but if there is no God, then how are we English intellectuals supposed to say to these German intellectuals that what they're doing is objectively wrong? We can say we don't prefer it, we don't like it. We can say it's not good for society, but they could just as easily say, well, we do prefer it, and it is good for our society. W.H. Auden realized that his moral feelings were more than feelings. That it's not just a genetic code, you know, designed into our, um, into, our, into our genes to help our species to survive. That there is an objective, absolute, and absolutely binding moral reality behind the feelings. And it took the horror of the Holocaust to make that real to him. So he turned aside. He began to say, look, I've got this data that doesn't fit my view of reality. But instead of saying this data doesn't make any sense, he turned aside. He said, maybe it's my view of reality that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I need to change my view of reality. And so he went back to church and he became a Christian. For W.H. Auden, the Holocaust was a burning bush. It was a shift in the way he thought. Now, for other people, it might look differently. For other people, the burning bush might be other people. Maybe you, uh, maybe you think all Christians are a certain way, and then you meet somebody who's not that way, 
And, and, and what's more, you find out that this person actually believes in the virgin birth. They believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you say, wait a minute, how can this be? They're so normal. They're not wearing a MAGA hat. You, you don't know what to make of these people. Sometimes people can be a burning bush. Uh, but lastly, actually, one of the big ones is um, sometimes burning bushes are emptiness. You have some goal, something you're trying to achieve because you think that's what's going to fulfill you. That's what's going to satisfy you, and then it doesn't. And so you go on to something else because you think maybe this is what's really going to satisfy me. This is what's really going to fulfill me, but then it doesn't. Eventually, many people get to a place where they realize that nothing in this world is going to satisfy them. And then they realize with a shock, wait a minute. If, if nothing in this world can satisfy me, then what do I do with that? If, if this world, why do I constantly find this world so unsatisfying? If this world is all there is, why am I not satisfied by anything in this world? Hmm, maybe it's because I'm meant for something more than this world. See, a burning bush can be many different things, but whatever it is, it's something that challenges, it disrupts your view of reality. And when it comes to God, it can look a lot of different ways. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what does that mean for you? Maybe it means this. Maybe, maybe it means you're one of those people that, um, that you've been saying now for a while, you know, I really should explore this whole Christian thing. I know I don't know a lot about it, and I really want to learn more, and, and I feel like i got to do that because that way, even if I reject it, at least I understand what it is I'm rejecting. If that's you this morning, my encouragement is don't keep putting it off. You, you're probably here because you have Christian friends. There are people you can talk to. There are books you can read. There are resources available to you, but I want to encourage you. I mean, I hate to put it this way, but one day may never come. All you really have is today. Or maybe you're here this morning, not a Christian, and maybe you're like W.H. Auden. Maybe you grew up going to church, but then you rejected um, the faith of your childhood along with you know, things like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. And now maybe ever since then, that's, that's all you think Christianity is, something to ridicule. You, you treat it like a boggart. You guys, you remember what a boggart is, right? In Harry Potter... You remember a boggart? Okay, Harry Potter lesson. A boggart, <laughs> Professor Lupin was teaching defense against the dark arts, and, he, and he's got, and Harry Potter was being tormented by the Dementors. Is it coming back now? A boggart is a shapeshifter that lives in dark places, and it assumes the form of whatever terrifies you the most. And you remember, how do you get rid of a boggart? You think of something ridiculous. You think of something laughable, and then you point your wand at it, and you say, ridiculous, and it flies away. Maybe some of you have been treating Christianity like a boggart, something to be laughed at. And now maybe you're beginning to realize how intellectually lazy that is. So maybe a burning bush has come into your life, and you're beginning to realize that there's more to Christianity than this childish version that you rejected when you were a kid. Turn aside. Or lastly, maybe you, you're here and you have been exploring Christianity. You have been asking questions. You have been looking into it. But, but you've gotten some answers, but there's still just a couple of things maybe that you just can't quite get over, problems that you can't quite explain. Maybe it's, why does God allow evil in the world? Maybe it's, I don't understand the doctrine of hell. I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. For me, the big question was, how can Jesus be the only way? I didn't understand, you know, aren't there multiple ways to God? 
Listen, you know, here's the thing. Every worldview comes with its own problem set. The question is not, am I going to be able to find a worldview that perfectly answers every single problem and question of human existence and gives me 100% certainty about everything? That doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Every worldview comes with its own problem set. The question is, which worldview has the smallest problem set? Which worldview makes best sense, not perfect sense, but best sense of the biggest problems and questions of humanity. One of the big reasons that I'm still a Christian after 21 years is because I've kept looking for a worldview that makes better sense of the biggest questions and problems of the world, and I haven't found it yet. Friends, if you're going to encounter God, if you're going to really meet God, one of the first things you have to do is turn aside. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is just as important for you. Because maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you have been a Christian all your life, or at least for a long while. Maybe you think, look, I understand Christianity, I understand doctrine, I know the answers, I believe in Jesus, Jesus is my identity, Jesus is my security. But then something comes along and challenges and disrupts your life. Maybe the loss of a friend, or a a job, or a relationship, or something else traumatic comes into your life, and all of a sudden, you're melting down. And you start wondering, wait a minute, why is this happening to me? It's a burning bush in your life. Maybe you begin to realize, wait, maybe Jesus isn't as central to my existence as I thought he was. It's a burning bush. Friends, if you're a Christian, you still need to turn aside and keep turning aside. Keep letting the burning bushes that come into your life, keep pursuing God, keep growing in God. There's a great place in the Chronicles of Narnia where the little girl Lucy meets Aslan the lion again after many years. Aslan represents Jesus. And she says to Aslan, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, I'm not bigger. You're older. And every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Friends, if you want to keep meeting God, if you want to meet God at all, one of the things you have to do is you have to turn aside and you have to keep turning aside. Keep letting those burning bushes drive you to seek the Lord and to seek all of those things that are disrupting your view of reality. That's the first thing we have to do. But secondly, not only do we turn aside, we have to take off our shoes. You know, one of the really fascinating things about this passage is, um, you know, here's Moses, and in verse 4 it says, When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. Not just Moses. Moses, Moses. In the Bible, anytime you see a doubling of the name like that, it always indicates emotional intensity. It always indicates urgency, emotional urgency. So, for instance, when King David lost his son, he cried out, Absalom, Absalom emotional urgency. Or when Jesus was trying to warn Simon Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, that the doubling of the name, it's always a sign of passion and emotional intensity, emotional urgency, so that when God calls out, Moses, Moses, it's God's way of saying, Moses, I'm passionate about you. Moses, I want to know you. Moses, I want you near me. I want you to come into my life, into my presence. But here's the really weird thing. The very next thing God says after that in verse 5 is, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's kind of weird because it's kind of like God is saying, Moses, Moses, come near. Don't take another step. (laughs) Moses, Moses, I want you in my life. Now get away from me. What's going on? 
Is God just incapable of making up his mind? Or is he like a, you know, a coquette, like he's kind of flirting and, you know, come away. No, come near, stay away, you know? No. God, what is going on here? Well, how does God manifest himself to Moses in this passage? Fire. It's fire. What is fire? Think about it. Fire, on the one hand, is incredibly attractive. It's beautiful. It draws you in. You want to, you want to get close. You want to get near. You want to look at it, but it's also radically dangerous. It, 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 you can't get too close to fire because it'll destroy you. you know, one of the most common images for God in the Bible, and especially in the book of Exodus, and we're going to see this as we keep going, is, is one of the most common images for God in the Bible is fire. Because what does fire represent? One of the things, when you really begin to get a sense of the presence of God, you begin to get a sense of his beauty, his goodness, his glory, his purity, his holiness. But when you begin to get a sense of that, that is radically threatening to you. Because when you begin to get a sense of his absolute goodness, absolute purity, absolute holiness, absolute moral perfection, you begin to realize also how you are not good or pure, or holy, or perfect. Friends, you know, T.S. Eliot in his Four Quartets, one of the greatest poems of the 20th century, another English intellectual, by the way, who converted from atheism to Christianity, T.S. Eliot once said that humankind cannot bear very much reality. That is a brilliant observation. Think about it. Think about fire. We love fire. It's warm. It's beautiful. We want to look at it, but we can't bear too much of the reality of fire. Get too near to it, and it'll take your skin off. Or what about water? Water's wonderful. We love to drink it. It's so refreshing. It's so soothing. But if you get dropped into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, what happens? You can't bear too much of the reality of water. How much more if we were to come before ultimate absolute reality itself? What would happen? We can't bear too much reality. What happens to people in the Bible who really come into the presence of God? In this passage, Moses is so afraid, he has to hide his face. Or a little later, the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the glory of God in the temple, and he cried out, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. He was terrified. Or later on in the Gospels, when Peter and some other disciples were out fishing all night and they didn't catch anything, Jesus told them, hey, cast your nets back into the water one more time. And they did. And when they brought up a load of fish that was so big it almost broke their nets, Peter realizes who this is who's talking to him. And he says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He was terrified of Jesus. And listen, you know, this still happens to people. It's not just in the Bible. For instance, Barbara Ehrenreich is a, uh, a political activist. She's an author. She's also a lifelong atheist. But um, she wrote a, a memoir, a book called Living with a Wild God. Great title. She talks about how when she was 17 years old, uh, she was at a place in life where she was looking for answers to the big questions of life. She was looking for meaning. She was looking for answers to the questions of right and wrong, of good and evil. And she says that one morning before dawn, she was standing out in the middle of an empty street, and she had an encounter with something. And here's how she put it. She said, there were no visions, no prophetic voices, just this blazing everywhere. Interesting choice of words. Something, she said, something poured into me and I poured out into it. But this was not the passive beatific merger with, quote, the all, as promised by Eastern mystics. No, 
It was a furious encounter with a living substance. Ecstasy would be the word for it, but only if you acknowledge that it does not occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it can resemble an outbreak of violence. This is how she describes an encounter with absolute reality. Friends, listen, I know that in our culture, you know, we only want to think of God as a loving God, and God is loving. But we only want to think of God as a loving God, only as a safe God, only as a tame God. We, we don't want to think of God as a wild God, as a dangerous God. We certainly don't want to think of God as a holy God. We won't let God be God. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. But for now, here's what this means for us. When you meet the real God, one of the things that has to happen when you come into the presence of ultimate reality is you have to begin coming to terms with your own guilt and sin. And I know that as soon as I say those words, that causes a lot of us to bristle. Because in our culture, guilt and sin are no longer moral categories. They're no longer theological categories. In our culture, guilt and sin have become therapeutic categories. What do I mean by that? I mean that every single human being on the face of earth experiences guilt. That's not a question. Even Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, he, he built his whole, whole framework around this. He said that every human being experiences guilt. The question is not, do we experience guilt? We all do. The question is, what is it? Where does it come from? And what do we do with it? The answer of our modern culture is that all guilt is purely subjective. It's not based on anything real. And therefore, you know, what do we do with it? Well, we can say that it's maybe the result of a, you know, a holdover from ancient superstitious religion. We could say that maybe it's the result of a hyperactive conscience. Maybe we can say that, you know, it's part of our genetic code that helps our species to survive. But it's not based on anything real. It's all subjective. It's, it's not moral failure, and it, it's certainly not sin, which means that the solution to guilt and sin in our lives is not that we need forgiveness. It's that we need therapy. Listen to me. If, if, if that's true, if there is no God, then, then that's true. There is no real guilt. And, and, and maybe we, all we really need is therapy to just get rid of these subjective feelings. But listen, if there's such a thing as evil, and I mean real evil, in other words, if rape and genocide and torturing babies for fun, if those things are objectively wrong, not we don't prefer them, not we don't like them, not they don't help our species to survive, but objectively, absolutely wrong, then where do you think that comes from? Or rather, who does that come from? Moses, Moses, don't come any near. One of the things that happens when you get into the presence of God is we have to begin coming to terms with our guilt and our sin. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does God say to Moses? He says, Moses, take off your shoes for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. To take off your shoes means that to come before God is a moral beggar. I hate to put it like that, but it's the truth. To take off your shoes means to come before God humble, to, to, to acknowledge that even though the world might say you're a really good person, even though in your heart you might think, hey, I'm not like other people. I'm not, certainly not like those people over there, those people being the ones that don't belong to my tribe. Listen, I, you know, I know that's what we say, but what are we doing? 
We want to come to God and, and say, God, look, here's my goodness. Here's my virtue. God, look at all the wonderful things I've done. We don't want to come as moral beggars. We want to say, God, look at how wonderful I am. There's a really scary place in the Gospels where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, many people will come to me on the last day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, not Lord, 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 I'm passionate about this. Lord, Lord, didn't I do many wonderful things in your name? And Jesus said, I will say to those people, depart from me, I never knew you. That's the way we want to approach God. We don't want to come as moral beggars. We want to have something to bring to the table. We want to bring some virtue. We want to bring some goodness. We want to come to God and we want to say, Lord, Lord, didn't I always vote for the right person? Didn't I recycle? Didn't I, Lord, didn't I march in the streets for justice? Haven't I always been on the right side of history? We can't bear the thought of coming before the God of the universe as moral beggars. Friends, we can't bear too much reality. But if you're going to meet God, if you're really going to come into the presence of God, we have to come into his presence, taking off our shoes. Friends, the gospel does not say you bring your goodness, you bring your virtue, and then God is going to love you and accept you. That's religion. But it's not Christianity, and it's certainly not the gospel. The gospel says, you bring your moral need. You bring your moral emptiness. You bring your insufficiency. There was a great pastor named John Gerstner. He always used to say that when it comes to God, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. (laughs) But most people don't have that. Friends, can you bring your need to God? The first thing we have to do to really come and to the presence and have an encounter with the living God is we have to turn aside. We have to acknowledge and pursue and investigate all those things that don't fit our view of reality. But the second thing is we have to take off our shoes. We have to come humble. We have to come as moral beggars, recognizing that we are not qualified to stand and to bear the ultimate reality of God. And that leads to our last point, okay? First, we have to turn aside Second, we have to take off our shoes. But lastly, we have to see the angel in the fire. Because here's where we're at at this point. What's the real problem here? I mean, look at Moses in this passage. God says, Moses, don't come any closer. You're in the danger zone. And and it says Moses was so afraid that he hid his face. In fact, later on in the book of Exodus, Moses meets God again. And God says to Moses, Moses, no one can see my face and live. But the really weird thing about this passage is that here's Moses, and he's meeting the living God, the holy God of of reality. And not only does he survive, but he starts arguing with God a little bit later. I mean, how can that be? How can Moses survive, and not just survive the presence of God, but flourish in the presence of God? Here's the question. You know, if God is so holy— that nothing less than pure holiness can survive his presence, then how is Moses supposed to survive the presence of God? And even more than that, how are you and I supposed to survive his presence? You know, this whole interaction is between God and Moses. And, And what does it show us? I mean, look at the burning bush. The burning bush, that is a perfect picture of our problem. Because here's this bush that that's being burned up but not consumed by the fire. The the burning bush is a perfect picture of our problem. How are you and I supposed to stand in the midst of the holy, fiery presence of the living God of the universe and not be consumed by it? How are we supposed to do that? Well, the answer is in the beginning of this passage. The reason Moses was able to survive this experience was because he had protection going in. Where do we see that? 
Like I said, this passage, the whole thing occurs between God and Moses. They're the only two characters in this passage. But right at the beginning, it's very interesting in verse 2, it says the angel appeared to Moses, the angel of the Lord. It, it only mentions him in verse 2, but then for the rest of this passage, it's all between God and Moses. What's going on with this? The angel of the Lord is this very mysterious figure that keeps appearing in the Old Testament over and over again. The, and by the way, it's not an angel of the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord. Every time this angel shows up, it's, it's, it's always talking like God. This angel is always acting like God. This angel is always assuming all the prerogatives and the privileges of God. In fact, this angel is, anytime God wants to give his presence to somebody in the Old Testament without destroying them, he does it by means of the angel. This angel, in some weird way, this angel is both distinct from God and yet fully God. What in the world is going on with this? Alec Motier is, um, was, I should say, one of the most brilliant um, scholars of the Old Testament. His commentary on Exodus has been one of my main resources. Here's how Alec Motier describes what's going on here. He says, the angel is revealed as the merciful accommodation of God, whereby the Lord can be present among a sinful people when, were he to go with them himself, his presence would consume them. The angel is the way the holy God can keep company with sinners. The angel is the way that a holy God can keep company with sinners. Who in the world could this be? Alec Motier goes on to say this, there is only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet a supreme display of his mercy. The angel of the Lord can only be understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Friends, how can the fiery presence of God come into your life without you being destroyed and consumed by the fire? As I was thinking about it this week, I kept thinking about the last Star Wars movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's been out for a year, so spoiler alert. Um, but at the end of the movie... <laughs> the, okay? If you don't want to know, just, you know, go like this. But it's, you know, you know how these stories go. At the end of the movie, of course, the evil empire has been chasing the rebel forces, and the rebel forces, they end up in their fortress, and they shut the doors against the evil empire, the first order. But then the full army of the evil empire shows up, and they're, um, they show up at the front doors of the fortress, and they have all these heavy assault walkers, like, you know, the things on top of the big long legs that have, like, they're big cannons that shoot down from the, the big legs. They, I, you know, weird things. Heavy assault walkers. I had to look it up to find out what you call these things. There's a technical language for all of this stuff. But they're there with these heavy assault walkers, and they're about to blow down the doors of the fortress. You know, like the firepower of one of these things is off the charts. They've got a whole battalion of them. And so here they are. They're about to blow down the front doors of the rebel fortress, but along comes Luke Skywalker. And he stands down there in front of this whole army of heavy assault walkers. And Kylo Ren, the supreme leader at this point, he, when he sees Luke Skywalker, he goes apoplectic and he says to unleash the full firepower of that whole battalion of, of assault walkers, unleash the whole thing on Luke Skywalker. And so they do. It's a barrage of fire that goes on for like 30 seconds in the movie. It's a really long time. So much so, I mean, it's just, just barraging Luke 
Skywalker, you think there's no way, you know, he's going to survive this. I mean, we think that. But it's so, it's so bad that eventually one of the commanding officers says to Kylo Ren, okay, enough, do you think we got him? <laughs> they Finally, they stop firing on Luke Skywalker, and all that's left is this smoldering, smoking, red, smoky crater in the ground. But then as the dust and the smoke begin to clear, of course you know what happens. Out comes Luke Skywalker walking out without a scratch on him. I mean, he even flicks a piece of dust off his shoulder. <laughs> How in the world is Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, supposed to give us the fiery, holy presence of God without us being consumed by it? There's only one way, by being consumed himself. Because where is this angel in this passage? Where's the angel? He's in the fire. He's in the fire. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He says, I came to cast fire on earth. And oh, how I wish that it were already kindled. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about one day the full justice of God is going to come on this earth and it's going to bring justice on all the evil and injustice in this world. It's coming. We can't bear too much reality. The judgment is coming. The fire is coming. That's what Jesus is saying. I came to bring it. But then right after that, he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's he talking about? Don't you realize? He's talking about his death on the cross. Jesus is saying, I came to bring fire. I came to bring judgment. I came to bring justice. But the way I bring it is by being consumed by it. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ went into the fire. He was devoured by it. Jesus Christ was consumed by all of the fire of all God's justice on all of the evil and injustice in this world, including you and me, all of our evil and injustice, Jesus was consumed by the fire so that you and I could walk out like Luke Skywalker without a scratch. Friends, Jesus Christ has done everything possible to make it possible for you and me to stand in the presence of a holy God, a loving God, but a just God, and not just survive, but flourish, not just be able to see God's goodness, see God's beauty, see his holiness and his perfection, and not just to survive it, but to be welcomed into the midst of it. Dear ones, the first thing you have to do if you're really going to meet God is you have to turn aside. What are the challenges and the disruptions that are coming into your life? That those are God's way of trying to get your attention. Are you listening? Where is he at work in your life right now? What is he doing in your life right now? What are the burning bushes in your life right now? Are you listening to them? The first thing we have to do is turn aside. Friends, this is for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. But secondly, we have to take off our shoes. We have to acknowledge that, that we have no sufficiency in ourselves to stand before ultimate reality and have any reason to expect that we could possibly survive it. We have to come in all of our moral need, in all of our moral emptiness. And I know that's hard, but that's reality. And the only way we'll really meet God is by getting real with God. And friends, if you can do that, if you can turn aside, and if you can take off your shoes, then lastly, you have to see the angel in the fire. Because Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord who has done everything necessary to make it possible for you to stand and enjoy and bask in the presence of God. He was consumed by the fire so that you could walk out without a scratch. Friends, Jesus loves you. The Lord of the universe is passionately in love with you. He's calling your name. He wants to be with you. 
and he's done everything necessary to make it possible. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for um, this really difficult but really amazing passage, this really difficult but, Father, also amazing truth that, that your reality is too much for us, but you've done everything necessary to make it possible for us not just to survive but to flourish in the presence of your reality. Father, we want to know you, but we don't really understand. We don't really know what that means. Lord, this passage helps us to begin to understand what that means. We pray that you would help us to turn aside, to take off our shoes, and to see the angel, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's done everything necessary to make it possible for us to survive and to flourish in your presence. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.